for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we head to Scotland to find out more about what's being billed as the biggest search for the legendary Loch Ness Monster in more than half a century. What will they be deploying to try to catch a glimpse or hear a sound of the ever-elusive Nessie? Homesickness. We probably all felt at least a pang of it at some point. With lots of students heading away from home these days to go to school, we thought we'd take a closer look at what it means to be homesick and the best ways to cope with it. One of Europe's most legendary DJs has moved from the Netherlands and now calls Canada home. Speaking of being away from home, Ben Liebren joins me to talk about DJing back in the days of tape and turntables, his remixes that became huge international hits, and his move to Alberta and then BC. But first, we head to the Shuswap area of BC where a major wildfire continues to burn. And that's also led to some heated moments between those who've chosen to defy evacuation orders to stay behind and protect they and their neighbors' homes from the flames. And authorities tried to enforce exclusion areas meant to help BC Wildfire Service do their work. One of those staying behind joins me to explain why he is. And we begin with some good news for those who've been forced out of their homes in Kelowna, but also a different kind of story in another community in BC Southern Interior where fires are burning as well. We saw progress in one and some friction in the other over the last 24 hours. First, in the Kelowna area, uh, what's been called the McDougal Creek Wildfire is still burning, but the city of Kelowna's fire chief, Travis Whiting, says he expects our evacuation orders were lifted so that everyone within that city uh, could go home. This is really exciting news. I can tell you at the fire hall, the mood is very, very high and very, very positive this morning. It has been our goal for the last seven days to get you people, to get all our residents home safely, and we couldn't be more excited uh, to see this happen today. So, again, courtemergency.ca, super excited. Uh, we're going to get everyone home tonight, and that's uh, that's a big deal. Yeah, you can hear him kind of getting emotional at the end of that. It's been a really long fight for a lot of those firefighters. Not to be mistaken, of course, with West Kelowna, but travel restrictions uh, will be lifted to West Kelowna late tonight. Effective at midnight, that order banning travel uh, to West Kelowna for people to go visit, of course, will be uh, lifted as well. Meantime, the BC Wildfire Service temporarily pulled crews out of some of the fires in the Shuswap region and reassigned them in part because of protesters who came to an RCMP roadblock last night. They reportedly came to a blockade of police cars in an evacuation zone near the lakeside community of Sorrento, saying they wanted to support community members who are defying orders to leave. They left without accessing the area. The 410 square kilometer Bush Creek East of fire in the Shuswap has resulted in the evacuation orders for about 3,000 properties. A spokesperson for the RCMP says they're not aware of more protests being planned, but Corporal James Grady says more resources have been brought in to the spot where those protests took place last night. You know, we've had to bring in extra resources, unfortunately, to that particular area because of this, uh, this type of concern in that particular location. So certainly if uh, they or anybody else continues to try and, and test, the, test the waters up there with trying to go into areas which they're unlawfully supposed to be in, then, then we'll be able to respond effectively for sure. So what exactly is going on to help us understand is Jay Simpson. He's area director for the North Shoe Swap, uh, Columbia Shoe Swap Regional District. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for your time tonight. You bet, Ben. Nice to be here. Tell me a bit about what's going on, because I understand there's been, right off the bat, there was there was some anger within the community around there. Just, I mean, I know that that fire moved very quickly, and communication kind of seems to have fallen apart just a little bit, and people were put on the back foot pretty fast. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, it came in fast. It came in Friday night and over Friday night and into Saturday, and things were crazy. It was a firestorm, and uh, we were a little concerned because we didn't see much evidence of, of BC wildfires, people here to help us out. I mean, I'm, I know that they were they were in the area, but, uh, you know, from our point of view, it was, it was very difficult to see that, and it kind of gave us um, a bit of concern, and, and so... Uh, a bunch of the people in the community really we stuck around and, and uh, did our best to save what we could in our communities. Right. I guess at that point it becomes either you know uh, a question of saving your properties, right? If you don't feel like the help is coming, then you do what you can to try to try to do it yourself. Well, that's true. I mean, we we evacuated you know most of the women and children and elderly and the dogs and cats and things like that. They were all taken out a couple of days earlier. But uh, we stuck around. Um, we were here to make sure that, you know, we could do whatever we could do to make sure that we, we kept our communities intact. Right. Uh, now, tell me a bit about what's happened then within the last 24 hours or so, because it looks like tensions have, have boiled up a bit. Uh, what exactly is going on? Well, there was a, a minor protest in Sorrento, and that's a community across the lake from us, about 25 kilometers away. Um, and they were, I guess, protesting in, in favor of us or in support of us because we are defying what is termed as an evacuation order. And mm-hmm. my understanding is that an evacuation order says that you should get out, but if you do stay on your property, you have to stay on your property. You're not allowed right. to put out a fire on your neighbor's lots. You can't go down the street and help out a friend you have to stay where you are, and, and that was the challenge for us because our whole community was on fire, and we were just doing what we could where we could. Right. Uh, but there has been, of course, um, officials have come out now and sort of said it's imperative that people get out of the way of the fire fighting itself. Uh, how do you balance those two? We weren't in the way of anybody trying to fight it other than ourselves. If BC right. Wildfire was in the area, they were um, you know, up in, in different areas, the people of the communities and our local fire departments, of which we have three in Solista and uh, Anglemont and Scotch Creek. Uh, we were the people who were on the ground fighting the fires and trying to protect everything. Right. So, so help me understand then. So they, they were, uh, the protesters were there to try to support you, right? Is there pressure for you to go? No, not really. But we do, we, we have a challenge here because Given the the rules that you have to stay on your own property, and given that we were not doing that, there are significant police presence trying to keep us at least in our own communities of of Lee Creek, Scotch Creek, or Solista. Um, there was maybe maybe some minor looting of some resources from from BC Wildfire, uh, or at right. least repurposing of some of the hoses and things that were kind of laying on the ground in preparation. And when the fire came through, you kind of, you grab what you can and plug it into a pump and you spray. Um, so, you know, there may have been some of that. Some BC Wildfire wasn't very happy with that. And I understand that. I mean, they go to use them later on and they aren't where they expect them to be. So, you know, that's a challenge. But we were there in the heat of the moment and we were fighting what we, with what we could. And, and part of that was using every tool available. 
Right. Uh, I mean, we've seen, I think, I mean, I haven't been on the ground, obviously, but we've seen, you know, in West Kelowna and Kelowna, then we've seen in the Northwest Territories, it's everything's gone relatively smoothly. But there are always exceptions, right? And I gather sometimes in a community such as yours, you're all around, uh, you're all around the lake, and, and these are smaller communities. And sometimes, um, you know, people are used to doing taking care of themselves, right? I was reading one, uh, one of your neighbors today talking about, you know, we're just used to, to taking care of our own, to protecting our own homes. Uh, but I, I guess what happens then is you, you run into a bit of, you run into a bit of conflict, per, perhaps. So what do you make of, sorry, I, I gather the, uh, the minister Bowen Ma was saying that people are getting in the way of sort of firefighting and, and, uh, and other things. What do you say to that? I, I say that that isn't totally accurate. Um, at this point, we have been in conversation with BC wildfires. They came out and spent a couple of hours and talked about their tactics and, and how they were doing things and, and how the, the fire kind of came about. And uh, in, we've been uh, certainly available to them and are, are now working with them in close concert. We have people uh, from our community that are very skilled with working with big equipment and uh, making fire breaks and Right now, BC wildfires is spread so thin throughout right. the whole province. There's, there's fires everywhere that they do not have the personnel or the equipment to deal with this, this whole massive provincial problem that we've got. So they really appreciate the fact that there are people on the ground that have some skills that can go out there and help them make fire breaks. And we're doing that. We're working with them very closely right now. So it sounds like it sort of start off as, as a communication issue, right? Mainly, I mean, obviously everyone was working towards the same goal, which was protecting your properties, protecting your homes. Uh, but there was some, some mix up with the communication early on, at least when, uh, and I gather that there's been quite a heavy police presence as well. Well, yeah, the communication in the early part of this fire was, was very poor. Um, you know, we didn't know where they were. If they were here, they certainly didn't let us know they were here. And uh, we had to do what we could to protect what we've got. Um, at this point, the police presence is out there. And that's because we're in this lockdown mode where you're not supposed to leave your own property. But we still have fires. We still have right. communities that are, you know, have lit tree trunks and things like that. And, you know, if there's nobody taking care of that, uh, we're going to try to do that if it's within our urban, you know, well, urban is, is kind of, uh, an interesting word in, in our situation, but uh, yeah, know, we have still, communities of 400 yeah. or 700 or that kind of thing, but um, we still are there we're, you know, we're, and we're taking care of that. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting, Jay, it's easy for me to sit here in Victoria and say, well, you know, you should leave when you're told to leave. But obviously, if houses are burning around you, it becomes a much more gray situation. It's not a black or white situation, right? Uh, and I guess it's just a, try, a question of everyone trying to figure out that no one, everyone making sure no one steps on anyone else's toes well, and no one gets into harm's way while doing this. Well, exactly. And that's, that's our biggest concern. If anybody gets hurt, it's, you know, it's going to be a, a huge problem. Um, everybody has been careful. Uh, most of the people out here are, you know, we've, they've been loggers. The people that stay behind are loggers and other people that have, are used to working with industrial equipment and are very skilled in, in those um, areas. Uh, the few that, that aren't are, you know, doing some of the background work, like making sandwiches, getting water and, and food to the people that are fighting the fires on the front lines and, and taking care of them in a background mode. And, and you know, between those two uh, tasks, uh, the community has come together and done what we needed to do.
Jay, when you look at this situation, how would you how would you fix it for next time? I mean, clearly the communication needs to be there, and um, I, I think again, I, I think it's pretty clear everyone here wants to is working towards the same goal, which is to protect property and to protect life, but just trying to get those rules in place and try to make sure that they make sense, right? Well, it's very true. Uh, I think communication was the big problem right off the bat. Uh, we didn't know where BC Wildfire was. We didn't see them in our communities. And and so we took matters into our own hands because there wasn't any other hands to give them to. Uh, our local fire departments, are, are, our volunteer fire departments here, maybe you know 25 persons each, and, and they rotate through 12-hour shifts right now. Um, so that's certainly not enough to take care of this crazy fire that came through. Um, I think we've got about five, or pardon me, 300 people from the community that might be in the area right now, the evacuation zone, uh, out of 3,200 regular population, so maybe 10%. And we you know, did our best to work with the local fire departments and uh, take care of what we could. Right. And, and what do you say to, I mean, because there has been, you, I'm sure you've watched the coverage of this story uh, since it happened. Uh, what, do you, what do you say to, to those who are like, well, wait a second, you know, you need to get out of there to allow firefighters to do their work. Right. Well, Ben, to tell you the truth, I have not seen much coverage. My day has been flat out just trying to get things no done. Yeah. Um, indeed. How, and how is that I, going, know, by the way? I should have asked you. I should have asked you, how, how, is, how is your house? How, is, how are your neighbors? My house is good. We... BC Wildfires put up a fire fire guard and did a backburn up on the mountain. Uh, it was 14 kilometers of backburn and about 2,500 square meters. Um, so it was a huge backburn that they did. And our community was on the kind of the western edge, and, and we, I think, got the best of it. Uh, I think the fire kind of blew around the uh, the backburn that they did and came down in Scotch Creek and Solista more than us. So uh, we are fortunate in that respect. Um so that that's great. Yeah, and, and I guess on the other question, just what, what do you tell people who are who you know who look at this from a very because in a big city, obviously, if you're told to get out of somewhere so firefighters can go in, that's what you do, right? But clearly, where uh, where you are, things are a little bit more nuanced. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm on a farm, so you know we have a fair distance between neighbors. Uh, there's a lot of farmland in the area that is has that kind of thing. Uh, our, our communities are small. There's, like I said, 400 or 700 in, in these small villages, and it is a different animal. Um, an urban center like Vancouver, Victoria, absolutely, you get out of there because, you know, the fire is going to uh, come from your neighbor to you in a very rapid time. And although this fire did move very quickly, we did have, you know, a little bit of time between places, and so you could kind of have a chance to, to work on one place and, and then get to another before it really bore down on you really hard. Um, and it's just so spread out. We this this whole section that's been burnt is about uh, 25 kilometers long along the lakefront. So that's a huge stretch of territory that this fire blew through, and you know nobody could really deal with it on on the kind of basis that we needed to. Well, Jay, I appreciate you clearing this up. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Good luck. Good luck to you and your neighbors and, and the entire area. Can I just say one more thing, Ben? Sure. You talked about homesickness. My daughter's been yes, in Kamloops for the last six days. We're without power. She's been evacuated, and she's very homesick to come home. So we I'm hope sure that happens she is. really soon. Yeah, us too. I hope that happens as well. Yeah, that's I, we, we think of all the families that aren't at home tonight. And, uh, yeah, I hope your daughter's okay, and I hope she gets home to you soon, Jay. You bet. Thanks, Ben.
Yeah, that was the sound of ceremonies in the Ukrainian capital today to mark 32 years since uh, Ukraine's parliament approved a declaration of independence, which was supported by more than 92% of voters at a referendum later that same year, marking the end of Moscow's control over its neighbors, part of the USSR. And there were events across that country today, and of course, across Canada as well today, including in places such as Kelowna, where there was a flag raising, at least that was what was scheduled. But today also marks, believe it or not, 18 months to the day since Vladimir Putin launched that full-scale invasion of Ukraine and left the country fighting for its survival. So it was a somber uh, and yet celebratory day for many um, with Ukrainian roots or or people who are in Ukraine. Uh, In Ukraine, Ukrainian forces marked the country's independence day with a naval raid into occupied Crimea, believe it or not. President Vladimir Zelensky praised Ukrainians for their defiance and courage over the past 18 months. Here at home, the large Ukrainian diaspora has been joined by more than 170,000 and others, as I mentioned, since the beginning of the war back in February of 2022. So they marked uh, the day today um, right across the country. Uh, and that, as Canada announced a new ambassador to Ukraine, one who is from that same diaspora and who spent a lot of time on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, we wanted to get a better sense of the mood here and in Ukraine today. And to help us do that is Ihor Mikhalchishin. He's the CEO and executive director of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. And he joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the invitation and happy Ukrainian Independence Day. Indeed. I mean, this is a really important day for Ukraine, uh, 32 years since independence and 18 months since uh, Russia's further invasion of the country, trying to, of course, end that independence. Uh, what's the mood been like today? I guess it's a day of reflection and a, and a day of celebration for a lot of Ukrainians here in Canada. Yeah, for Ukrainians around the world and certainly all across Canada, it's a complicated day. We feel uh, celebratory of our culture, of our independence as a country, as a people, but we also reflect on the the thousands of uh, lives that have been lost by Ukrainian soldiers fighting for that, for that country, for that freedom. And every day uh, we know, you know, the toll that that, that, that Russian invasion takes on Ukraine. And, and I'm sure for the many Ukrainians who find themselves in Canada now, uh, thinking with family, often with family back there, that it is a day of, of separation in some ways as well. Absolutely. I mean, even though technology allows us to keep in touch much easier uh, than before. I mean, I was just watching my my cousin's husband is a commander of a platoon. And I was just watching, you know, again, his interview this morning and and reflecting on the fact that Ukrainian Independence Day is a day for celebrations, for families to be together, to celebrate, you know, what has been a, a, a long historical struggle for Ukrainian independence, one that my own, you know, grandparents, you know, fled and then, you know, we're overjoyed to sort of see, and um, we can't take that for granted. And I think, you know, the, the, those, the, looking at photos from previous years where one wouldn't have imagined the situation we're in right now necessarily. I remember this day actually back in 1991 because I had some Ukrainian friends at school and, you know, Ukraine's independence is not something so much was changing in what was becoming the former USSR so quickly was sort of hard to keep pace with what was happening. But I remember this incredible elation when this was happening uh, 32 years ago. I just remember my my grandfather sort of just, you know, in tears. It meant that he could go back, you know, and and visit his brother that he hadn't seen in 60 years, uh, it meant that people saw a future, you know, really for not only returning and visiting, but sort of re- rebuilding the country and that the the mission of our community here, who's been here for 130 years, you know, in terms of saving, preserving culture, language, you know, religious freedoms, that, that there, this was a huge 
game shifter and, and, and an opportunity to start giving back and to transfer that knowledge back to Ukraine where it had been repressed and, and uh, outlawed. Right. Which, which for listeners who might not always appreciate this, it does explain as well the reaction to Russia's further invasion as well and just how, how close to home it hit for so many people who appear to live far away. Well, there's so many, I mean, so many of us here in Canada, I mean, there's a million and 1.4 million Ukrainian Canadians and everyone, everyone's got some kind of family or friends. And, and you know, we say that the people to people ties, you know, throughout those 32 years and, and prior, you know, are are rich and complicated and, and interwoven because of, you know, election missions and families and business and cultural exchanges. We really say that Canada is the most Ukrainian country outside of out of Ukraine in terms of our you know how we have integrated and and Ukrainian culture and and traditions are part of the mainstream here, right? And speaking of that, Canada has a new ambassador to Ukraine today who embodies a lot of what you've just been talking yes, about. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, tell what was your reaction to that? Pleasantly uh, surprised. Natalka Smuts is somebody who has a great reputation. She's worked on a number of important files uh, for the Canadian government and in Ukraine. Uh, including on defense and, and procurement and all sorts of things. So she's very well uh, thought of, again, with a Ukrainian-Canadian background, which I think will help her quickly uh, land on the ground. I know she's been there for the last couple of weeks, and it's a you know a rich outcome for us in terms of having those kind of Canadian public servants that uh, can, can go there and integrate and, and help quickly. Because it feels like the needs there are changing, too. I mean, and you need someone on the ground who can recognize what Canada's role can be or what any ally's role can be right now. Yeah, it's it's an ever change. I mean, the, 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 the main theme is that the Russian invasion continues and the Ukrainian counteroffensive continues. And the many, you know, sort of nuances within that main narrative are you know, the need for more ammunition, the need for humanitarian evacuation and assistance uh there's a, there's also a you know there's economic uh rebuilding there's a rebuilding that happens you know instantly because of shelling there's rebuilding that will happen you know over the longer term there's a there's a hope a bright hope that you know ukraine will join the eu and nato and that that brings more strategic and that's the kind of work canada has been doing on the strategic front to integrate ukraine and integrate its institutions into into those eu and, and nato institutions what have you made of, of of some of the efforts so far? Because we know that the situation of Ukrainians coming to Canada has shifted a little bit. There's a new uh, policy for permanent residency that comes into effect a little later this year. Here we are 18 months after this invasion began, 32 years after the independence of Ukraine. There are more Ukrainians here, presumably, than ever before. How, how has the government reaction been now that we can look back at it with a bit of hindsight? Yeah, it's it's the biggest wave of Ukrainians coming to Canada ever. Whether we get called the sixth wave, the seventh wave, but I don't know what number we're on anymore. But um, yeah, there's about two hundred thousand Ukrainians that have come to Canada. We're not exactly sure how many have gone back. That's one of the open questions that we're talking to the government of Canada about because it is a it is a circular process. People can go back and forth, or they can, you know, I, I know of people that have gone back because of the family, you know, the, the being at a distance, as you said, is too difficult for for too long of a time, or because, um, you know, the economic reality here is is not not as they might have hoped. Our, our Ukrainian community, and I think you know, all of Canada has welcomed these these newcomers, these refugees. Our community institutions have have grown and expanded and become rich with with their. I was just at the Capital Ukrainian Festival here in Ottawa. You know, the entire performance 
schedule for the weekend was all newcomers who have come and formed groups and you know want to contribute back there is a underlying sadness and uneasiness and you know all of this is because of the war and and no one knows and no one's willing to predict when any of it the war will end and what that will mean for people in terms of you know where they can go back to and how they can go back and the number of people killed and injured that they know and their families and their their groups so it is a very um troubling situation underneath you know the surface Ihor, you touched on it briefly earlier and everyone thinks about the cost of living issue and i've spoken to a few people who've come from Ukraine who found it really quite jarring just how expensive it is to be here. Like it's been very hard to get a toehold, regardless of how much support people are getting. Is enough being done, do you think, is enough being done to recognize that many who come to this country in those circumstances are finding themselves in a pretty tough situation? Every individual and every family has their story and, uh, you know, has a different language. It really depends on people's language abilities when they arrive, you know, in English or French, um, on their professional accreditation or, or lack thereof on this on this kind of spectrum or scale. You know, we've seen great success stories with, you know, companies hiring individuals and training and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, but on the other hand, there's lots who aren't able to work in their field or aren't able to just hop into whatever, you know, profession they were doing earlier. Uh, Interestingly, I mean, because I think we're in 2023, I have met quite a few people that actually have continued their work, you know, whatever their job was because of digital online working, they're, they're working for the same company, they've just sort of shifted and adapted. And there's quite a few companies that have that did that, you know, throughout when people were fleeing, and then now wherever they settled, that's a really interesting new trend. But that's quite a small number still, I think, in comparison to the to the total. Yeah, and as for as many success stories as we see, we're also talking about food banks, right? And we're talking about cost of living and uh, survival jobs. And so, I mean, I, I don't think Ukrainians are unique in that sense. I think that you know the the cost of living in Canada's urban centers is quite high. The the rate of pay, if you don't have sort of a professional university accreditation, is not always enough to cover all your ends. And and depending on what family situation you come in, I, you know, in, in this case, many women with children have arrived without a partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, access to childcare and how, you know, how can you work when you don't have childcare and uh, the cost of childcare and all of those things are piling up on, on each other. Is there a sense, I mean, we're 18 months in, uh, and I know the pace of the news coverage has changed a little bit. Uh, it's not that people turn their eyes away from things, but people get used to something and even mm-hmm. even something as terrible as a war that where civilians are being targeted and so on. Uh, do you say, is that, is there that sense within the community that, that, that people need to be, to stay focused on them? I mean, clearly they are, but that focus is, is drifting a bit and it needs to be turned back in. I mean, the focus on the war is it's just, be, as you said, it's become normalized. It's become routine. We're not shocked. You know, you and I aren't shocked anymore when we hear about there every day there's, you know, Russian drone attacks on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully, the Ukrainian Air Force is shooting down more and more of these with with air defense systems. And there there aren't huge losses that, you know, it's it's a couple of people killed every day over some city where there's debris or building fires or whatever. So it's it's not as terrible as as what the news that was, you know, early on. So but it still is awful. The you know, the, the refugee crisis has settled in the sense of, you know, we had millions of people, I think up to 10, 12, 15 million people moving that they they have largely kind of, you know, made their homes wherever they are 
for now. And so we're in kind of a holding pattern. And, you know, and, and the Ukrainian army is making some advances, you know, under tough conditions where the, the land is very heavily mined. And, and Ukraine continues to ask for more weapons because they are always in danger of running out of, of shells and ammunition and tanks. You know, the, the media coverage kind of drives donation interest and the public attention. It's there. I mean, the sentiment is is super strong across Canada. People support Ukraine. They they have flags. They have made do- millions of dollars in donations. Uh, you know, when people were arriving early on, there was a lot of enthusiasm to host people and to give them, you know, furniture and clothing and stuff. The situation has just evolved now. And we're, we're you know, we're in something that will not end quickly. And, and um, I think... It, it, it's just a kind of a matter of trying to understand what the you know what the next year or two looks like, and I you know I hate to say it, but whenever whenever and hopefully the war ends soon and Ukraine wins, but whenever that war is over, Ukraine will be you know amongst the most heavily landmined countries in the world. That doesn't go away. You know the huge losses and impact on, on you know veterans that doesn't go away, and and the the mental health challenges and the rebuilding challenges will be even more present. So there's a there's a long road ahead, I think, which is daunting, but the immediate goal is to help Ukraine win as soon as possible. Right. So, so today, and I know there's events going on today, there's flag raisings mm. going on across the country. There's a lot going on on the weekend. So a day both to celebrate Ukraine's uh, independence to, uh, 32 years ago, but also to reflect on the last 18 months as well, no doubt. Yeah, it's been a week. We call it a sort of Independence Week because there was stuff last weekend. There's stuff throughout the week. I mean, there's more than more than forty events that we're aware of, kind of across Canada, coast to coast. Lots of new Ukrainian communities in places like St. John's, Newfoundland, and the Comox Valley on Vancouver Island, and um, you know, so we have we have seen these communities flourish here. Um, you know, but under as I said, I mean, we're providing services. Communities are helping each other through trauma and you know mental health challenge and um there is a deep uncertainty about people's futures you know here in canada or back in ukraine and 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 every day as you said people are worried for their loved ones and friends and family and it's that awful you know i have that awful have had that awful experience of you know who do i know who's been killed today Mm -hmm. uh you know whose obituary appears on facebook um who's funeral is being live streamed, you know, just, and that's just from people that I know of my age in Ukraine through various organizations, such as scouts and stuff. So it, it is a a generation that is being affected and, and every family um, is feeling it. And, and as I said, it, 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 this is a week, both of celebration and of reflection about the long road ahead. Well, Ihor, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. And again, thanks to all of your listeners for everything that they do. And, and thanks very much. What a day it was. I mean, I watched the coverage of this all afternoon because, I mean, again, it was very anticlimactic. Uh, But uh, I was watching Donald Trump make his way, obviously, from New Jersey, from Newark. He took off uh, heading to Atlanta, landing uh, at Atlanta's airport, making his way then by motorcade, a very large motorcade indeed, uh, to the Fulton County Jail to be booked uh, and arrested. There were fingerprints, and now there was a mugshot. Have you seen the mugshot? Because I think a lot of us were waiting for the mugshot. It is, in a way, um, it's funny. He somehow, Donald Trump somehow never doesn't fail to shock. He fails to shock these days in some senses. But to see the, a mugshot of a former president uh, is pretty remarkable. 
Uh, I was asking you about it. Jasper says, Trump is definitely trying to look tough. He used a different word. But to me, he looks like he's about to shut at me to keep off his lawn. Yeah, I agree. That was a real scowl. Well, the whole thing, we talked about it for, it's been talked about for weeks now, but it was all over in about an hour between the time he got off the plane and the time he was taking off again to head back to New Jersey. He landed around 7 p.m. local time in Atlanta to make his way to the Fulton County Jail, where he was arrested and booked on 13 uh, counts uh, that cast him as part of a criminal enterprise to overthrow the results of the 2020 election. The former president was officially registered as prisoner number P01135809 over those 13 felony RICO racketeering and conspiracy counts. Um, The booking, of course, brought about that historic first, a mugshot of a former or current American president, former American president, I guess there couldn't be one of a current, uh, Sheriff Pat Labatt of Fulton County confirmed that Trump had indeed had his mugshot taken and his fingerprints as well. He was released on $200,000 bond with the promise to appear for an arraignment early next month. Here's what he had to say before heading back to New Jersey. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows that I've never had such support. There he is. Uh, Not contrite, obviously. He and 18 others uh, were indicted last week, accused of participating in a sprawling conspiracy to overturn uh, his loss to Democrat Joe Biden in the 2020 election. His former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, turned himself in today. He had a much smilier or much more uh, congenial looking mugshot following former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and others. Mugshots all. Uh, Joining me now is Kevin Wagner. He's a professor of political science at Florida Atlantic University. Kevin, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Tell me a bit about the mugshot. I mean, I I guess everyone knew it was, most people, we anticipated it was coming. And yet to see it and him with that scowl, he obviously figured out what he was going to do. Never a man not to know what he's going to do when the camera's on him. Um, What did you make of it? You know, it's one of those interesting sort of historical moments where that photo is probably going to be one of those photos that, that we, we see and look at for, for, for a pretty long time because it just never happened before. And I think that's really the, the challenge about this story all the way around. You know, political scientists are good at pattern observers. We, we, we see things that have happened before and we use it to project things that happen in the future. It's a real challenge for us when we start having things repeatedly happen that have never happened before. And this is definitely one of those days. Indeed. I mean, these are some, for, for, I mean, I th- think people are probably pretty aware of what this case involves, but this is a big one, and it's different from the first three in many ways. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And, you know, the, the, one of the biggest things that I, I think a, a lot of people don't necessarily understand is that it being a state uh, criminal matter, it's not something that if you should win the presidency, he can pardon himself from. And, uh, and nor can any of his co-defendants either get a pardon from him should he return to the presidency. So it's a, it's a different kind of character of a case and, uh, and not one that he can easily get rid of. And in this case, I mean, he, he certainly was he, – he took full advantage. I mean, he landed sort of in prime time, right? He knew the news coverage would be there. I suppose politically it made sense for him the day after the, uh, the debate uh, to sort of steal all that thunder again. So people were talking only about Donald Trump again today. Um, but uh, what did you make of his demeanor? What did you make of his demeanor today? Yeah, well, part of his campaign strategy has clearly been uh, this idea that He's being persecuted. Uh, you know, he has a he has a campaign line that they're going after him. You know, you know, only because he stands in the way of them going after you, you being the collective supporters of him. So, in a lot of ways, this sort of you know fits very well into that narrative that has been sort of the heart of his campaign. That 
he's being persecuted and he needs to return to the presidency so he can defend his uh, his supporters um, from the federal government and all the opponents that he sees. I'm sure it came as no surprise to you that he was already fundraising off that mugshot about an hour and a half after it was taken. I believe they're selling. Uh, you can get a free t-shirt t-shirt apparently if you donate forty seven dollars to his uh, to him to him. You get a free t-shirt with that mugshot on it with the with the term "Never Surrender" on it as well. Uh, it feels like I mean under if you if you rewind back even 10 years, one would think that this would be absolutely destructive to a political career. I mean, I, I think back to the, you know, to the many, many, many scandals that have, that have taken down politicians quickly. Uh, and here we are, mugshot and all, and yet it feels like someone pointed out today, I think it was on CNN, someone who was like, he's like Super Mario. Every, every indictment's like a mushroom that he eats and he just gets bigger and more powerful. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that assessment. I mean, I agree with the, the, the general thought, which is that things that would have been destructive to a political career in the past are, are, are sort of shrugged off, and not just for a, you know the former president, but a, a lot in our political system. Um, a, a part of that is a product of how we consume our media these days. Increasingly, we just get it from sources that, that basically we all agree with, and so you know, we never see the, the, the news that suggests that the person that we like or at least we never even attempt to see the news that the person that we like is is not doing very well. But I, I would take a little bit issue with the notion that it just makes him stronger. I mean, it just in some ways it depends on how you assess the electorate. I mean, certainly among a segment of the Republican Party, and, and not an insubstantial one at that, but a fairly substantial segment of the Republican Party, it does you know play into the narrative that he's that he's pitching, and it, and it does make him stronger, and it's made him very very hard for other Republicans to catch him. I'm not so sure that the evidence supports the idea that independent or Democratic voters are persuaded at all uh, because of this. In fact, the likelihood is they're increasingly alienated. And it could create the, probably the, the worst absolute scenario for Republicans, which is him winning the nomination but not having a, a really solid shot at winning the presidency in a general election. And I think that's a, certainly a distinct outcome that's possible. Right. Unbeatable as the Republican, uh, in, in unbeatable in, in the nomination race and unelectable as, as a presidential candidate, in other words. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that, especially among independent voters, uh, and you know, not surprisingly among Democratic voters, uh, this is not making him more popular. And in fact, I, I think uh, I think it was Haley who said that he took the debate yesterday that he, he might be the most unpopular politician in the country, and and that, and that in fact could be accurate because uh, if you look at the totality of the electorate, this is not playing that well across other demographics. The problem for Republicans, though, is that none of those people are voting in these early primaries, especially in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And so, you know, his, his popularity among Republicans could carry him to the nomination, uh, but put Republicans really in a very difficult spot in the general election where the voters are not likely to be persuadable to support him. I, I was thinking today, and I think it was talked about often today, that we could head into Super Tuesday and find, you know, uh, find, find Donald Trump on trial somewhere that very day. Uh, do you think there is a risk here that that this that he's not as invulnerable as he thinks he is yeah i think it's a problem and one thing that's interesting about georgia and that's you know another difference between the federal indictments and the georgia indictments is that federal courts generally do not allow cameras in the courthouse so most of the stuff is secondhand reporting and you can spin secondhand reporting pretty well um, but the georgia laws do allow cameras in the courthouse uh, and uh, and the likelihood unless something changes, is that we'll be able to see uh, the the cases as they progress, especially since apparently one of the co-defendants uh, recently asked for a speedy trial, which might be as early as October. 
Uh, and you can actually see the evidence. It's a lot harder to spin things that you can see with your own eyes, and every station is going to cover this. And that actually might be something that his campaign would be concerned about because that, that's not, you know, you, you, you can't avoid that on just about every TV in America. Right. And just looking at the Georgia question as well, if we think back uh, to 2020, I mean, it was a it felt like a very he was he was very focused on Georgia. And a lot of people uh, were accused of things uh, in this whole attempt to try to overturn uh, the vote in Georgia, overturn Biden's win in Georgia. Uh, A lot of people got caught up in that. And it feels like today that was we didn't talk about it a lot today. A lot of the focus, of course, was always on Donald Trump. But this is a pretty interesting case here this is a there's a lot of familiar faces with mugshots tonight and a lot of people facing some pretty serious charges in georgia over this particular uh incident yeah and you know there, there were also unindicted co-conspirators in the federal case too but it looks like the 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 the, the approach in the federal cases is try to keep the cases relatively narrow so you can get a trial within uh Within, you know, before the election, whereas in, in Georgia, you know, which shows you how prosecutors can approach things differently, uh, the prosecutor there just went ahead and indicted, you know, a whole number of uh, compatriots that were around this, this contesting of the election. You know, a lot of it also comes down to this, this sort of strange way that the U.S. conducts presidential elections using the Electoral College. And the vast majority of states, we kind of know which way they're going to go, whether Republican or Democrat. So it really comes down to a handful of states. And and uh, and both sides often get frustrated when uh, when Hillary Clinton lost to to, uh, to Donald Trump. Um, you know, the, there was you know a lot of talk about well, it's you know it's only a you know a few thousand votes in this state, maybe ten thousand votes in the other state. You know, and they talk about well, how could this have been different? You know, the the problem for uh, for Mr. Trump is that, uh, that you know the allegations are he took it a lot farther than just complaining about small vote difference. The real choice we face in this primary is this: Do you want a super PAC puppet? Or do you want a patriot who speaks the truth? Do you want incremental reform, which is what you're hearing about? Or do you want revolution? I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. And the last person in one of these debates, Brett, who stood in the middle of the stage and said, What's a skinny guy with an odd last name doing up here was Barack Obama. And I'm afraid we're dealing with the same type of amateur standing on stage tonight. Well, it wasn't without its uh, humor uh, and without its moments. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy there, of course, and uh, Chris Christie, the former uh, governor of New Jersey. Uh, Ramaswamy is a tech or a biotech billionaire who's sort of been the sleeper in all this. He's certainly getting a lot of ink. Uh, Kevin Wagner is with us, professor of political science at Florida Atlantic University. Uh, there was some, it was pretty entertaining, that debate. I don't know whether I learned anything about their policies. And uh, you would think America was broken and they didn't talk about their opponent, which was, which was interesting. But what did you make of that debate last night? Yeah, it was kind of all over the place. Uh, you know, the, the, the you know, I've heard people term it as a people trying out for the VP, but I, I think that's probably wrong. I, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, the the president wasn't there, but he he was there, and you know, there was a lot of debate about sort of where the Republican Party ultimately is going to go. And I thought I think you saw that tension with uh, Ramaswamy and and, uh, and Chris Christie, but. Uh, but they were each trying to sort of make their moment on the stage because that's how, how campaigns are these days. I'm just not sure they really accomplished it. What I found interesting, too, is it just showed that uh, 
conservatism, I mean, if I think back to the conservatism of Reagan, which in of itself was, was you know, sort of blazed a new trail and then, and then George W. Bush, then uh, it feels like conservatism in America, at least, has a lot of different <laughs> – there's a lot of stuff going on. And it's, it, it feels really messy. If you watch that debate last night, you're like, well, what, what is it that you st- – what are you proposing for this country other than it's broken and it needs to be fixed? Yeah, I, I think part of the problem is that the labels don't really have meaning anymore. And, you know, right. even if you look at sort of poly, you know, Republican Party conservatism used to be strong defense and, and sort of very, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, against the, the Soviet Union, you know, we used to call the Soviet Union, but today, you know, the successor country of Russia. And you see sort of an evolution of Republicans, especially the Ramaswamy, you know, suggesting that, that we, we should not be as supportive of, uh, of the Ukraine. You know, so you see a sort of a movement there. I mean, Republicans, historically conservatism and, you know, free markets and free trade. And you, you see a little bit less of that under Donald Trump. So what does it mean today? I mean, from a political science perspective, it sounds a lot more populist than conservative these days. It certainly does. Uh, did you think any of them, did anybody on that stage last night look like they could even even remotely challenge Donald Trump? Yeah, I, I don't know that anything that happened last night changed the overall dynamic. We we poll at Florida Atlantic University, and and even in you know we poll Florida, and even in Florida where where Governor DeSantis is a relatively popular governor, we still had Donald Trump sizably ahead, in, even in his home state. So I'm not sure anything could have happened last night that was largely going to change that that sort of status of the race. Um, I, over, I mean, I, I thought uh, Haley was pretty strong. Chris Christie had his moments. Um, I think uh, Governor DeSantis uh, accomplished a lot of what he wanted to accomplish, too. But, uh, you know, you know, unless uh, something changes with uh, how the Republican electorate assesses the former president, it's hard to imagine how, uh, how they're going to make up the ground. And it's a lot of ground to make up. Yeah. And, and just how is what's the sense of how, how Joe Biden is doing heading into this? I mean, the election's just a little over a year away now. We don't know exact we don't know exactly who his opponent's going to be, but we have a pretty good guess uh, that it's going to be a, uh, you know, a rematch of the last election. Uh, what's your sense of how the Democrats are doing right now? Well, I think the numbers on President Biden are, are not great. Um, I, I think there's a lot of complaint from his campaign and and people that support the president that uh, that he's not getting credit for a lot of positive news that's coming out of the economy. And whether that's fair or not, the perception is, especially on the economy, that things aren't going as well as they should be. And, and the president gets a lot of the blame for that. His, uh, his numbers are not that strong. But, uh, but there's some question about, you know, whether or not it matters, because it's hard to imagine, you know, the, the support leaving President Biden going to, to former President Trump at this point. You know, the, there's an old joke in politics, right, that. You don't have to be the, the fastest runner. You just have to be faster than your opponent. And in this case, you know, Joe Biden might benefit from the fact that, uh, that he has an opponent that, uh, that makes people grudgingly support the, the president instead. Slow and steady wins the race. Uh, Kevin Wagner, thank you so much for your time tonight. Sure, anytime. You know, sometimes the people that come on the show are, are part of a bigger story. And I'll tell you this one. Uh, the first time I went to Europe, a million years ago now, I 
absolutely. I heard that remix of In the Air Tonight. Uh, Phil Collins is in the air tonight for the first time, I think, on a jukebox in France and thought, wow, that's amazing. So I went out and found the 45 at the FNAC in Paris and brought it home with me, and I still own that 45 somewhere. Then a few years later, this is a, a friend of mine I went to visit. He was living uh, outside of Amsterdam in a place called Alkmaar at the time. And uh, I bought a compilation cassette to play on my old Walkman. Remember those things? And one of the greatest songs on that compilation was a song called Sucker DJ by Dimples D. It took me a while to realize that those two songs, along with several others in my collection, actually had something or someone in common. Uh, one of Europe's most influential DJs at the time, Ben Liebrand. He basically blazed a trail for the many other DJs. I mean, DJ culture is huge now. It wasn't like that back in the 80s and early 90s. It was just starting out. Uh, so many, many people were inspired by his shows on Dutch radio and his remixes, some of whom, you, some of which you just heard. Uh, and he went on to create produce and remix some of the most popular tracks of the 80s and the 90s. Bill Withers, Phil Collins, as you heard, Sting, Salt and Pepper, The Four Tops, Blondie, the list goes on and on and on. He was named the world's best remixer uh, and as 1988. Uh, and a few years ago, believe it or not, because I saw him interviewed on a retrospective on YouTube about great Dutch DJs or great European DJs. And there was Ben Liebrand. And he said, oh, well, I'm living in Canada now. And I thought, what do you mean he's living in Canada? So I thought I'd call him and find out what that was all about so we could talk tunes, DJing, and living here in the great white north. And Ben Liebrand joins me now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Much appreciated. <laughs> Thank you very much. So welcome. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, it must be, I mean, we think of DJs now. There's so many DJs have become so popular and, you know, they have hits and they have big records. But back when you started out, I was reading, so, I mean, you didn't even really have much in the way of, of, of a guide to follow. I mean, it was so, so brand new when you first started DJing in, in Holland back in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is that uh, people can't fathom that uh, there was a time before the Internet. And, uh, you know, when the Internet wasn't yet there, you also didn't have like DJ groups or, or dance groups or whatever. So you did have YouTube. You couldn't look up uh, stuff and uh, you just had to find your own path. And I think I uh, had a, a bit of an advantage because I'm a bit of a technology nerd. Um, I love music, but I love uh, the te technology uh, to make music just as much. Uh, technology to mix music, to uh, compose, to produce, uh, mix, everything. And uh, I think that gave me a, a big head start uh, compared to a lot of other uh, guys just being a DJ that I also got into uh, combining those tracks, like mixing those tracks together. And um, that slowly led from one step to the next. And um, yeah, I was, <laughs> it, it, is, it is still a hobby and it started off as a hobby and it's, luckily it still feels like that. But it started off as uh, a hobby, and it just expanded left, right, and center. And I was just doing what I love to do and was so fortunate that so many people liked what I, what I was doing. What I found really amazing, because when you listen to that remix of In the Air Tonight and many of the other ones, it feels like they took, you know, it, you know, it would have taken months to put them together. And then I realized that you used to sort of do these mixes just for a radio show, and you kind of did them on the fly. Uh, and I thought that was really quite impressive, because you, you did them really quickly. Yeah, it's just one day. Uh, so um, that radio show back then, the radio show actually is still on, Touch Radio. And uh, the radio show started back in 1983. Uh, part of my uh, radio show was the Minimix. And the Minimix was an item of 
somewhere between five and seven minutes on a Friday evening, nine o'clock, uh, actually two records after nine. Um, and so I would have from early Friday morning until about 8 p.m. And then 8 p.m. I just had to jump in the car with my uh, tape, an- analog uh, uh, reel-to-reel tape, and uh, wow. wish to the wish to the, the radio station, which was about uh, 100 kilometers away. And then uh, the, the mix would be played. And one of those Friday mornings was, how about I do something with In the Air Tonight? And here's the thing, because it was for a radio show, because it was actually intended to be broadcast just once, there was no pressure. There was no people gazing gazing on me like, what the hell are you going to do with this classic uh, track? It was just taking the track, giving it a new twist, and as I love uh, the dance floor, making it more accessible for uh, the dance floor, and um, starting in the morning, do whatever came to mind, and in the evening, uh, drive to the studio and uh, play it out. And that lack of pressure... um, it, it it yielded so many hits. It did. And there's a great story, behind, I think, with you bringing that remix of In the Air Tonight to London, right? And sort of, and then it just blew up from there. Yes, yes, yes. So with, uh, with In the Air Tonight, um, the tape that was made that Friday, uh, that was driven to the studio, played in the studio, took it back home. And uh, I think it was a couple of weeks or, or months later, there was a big uh, con- DJ convention in um, London. And uh, in the Hippodrome, there were 2,600 DJs in one room. And uh, the organizer of uh, the event, it was a DMC DMC, uh, mix club event. And he asked, do you want to do a DJ set? Do you want to do something else? And I said to him, uh, Tony uh, is his name. And I said to him, I have a couple of mixes. I just like to play them out and see how the audience, how the, you know, how my colleague DJs, uh, respond to this. So I played out uh, in the air tonight, and when it was done, um, took the microphone and said, well, you know, guys, if you like this, give Virgin, because it wasn't Virgin uh, Records in uh, in the UK, give Virgin a call. And you can't, you can't imagine that anymore, but we're talking about a time that nobody had a mobile phone. Right. And um, at 11.30 in the morning, next morning, Virgin tracked me down to the hotel where I was because they were just going nuts with all the people uh, calling them regarding this mix. And so they finally got a hold of me in the hotel. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we hear uh, you, you have this mix. And, uh, you know, can you come over to the office? Because uh, it, it's it's apparently it's create, creating a buzz. So, And that very yeah. same tape ended up uh, at uh, Virgin in uh, – in the UK, and um, was the reason that uh, Phil Collins again had a number four hit with his uh, In the Air Tonight with uh, the remix I made back then. The remix you made in one day, or, or barely, yeah. <laughs> barely in yeah, a day. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What's it like? I mean, I, I've heard you talk about this, but how do artists react when you take their songs? Because I guess sometimes songwriters can be very protective of their material. But I gather that uh, that artists have been always quite quite happy with with your mixes of of their songs, even if they're quite reshaped. Well, um, I think I I when I pick a song, 
obviously it's because I love the song and because I love the song, I treat it with respect. Uh, then again, um, you know, I talked about this radio show, not having that pressure looming over you, which is a big help. And, um, I just take it into a different direction. And I believe that, you know, when, when I had finished my version, I hope my version uh, deserves to lead its life next to the original. You know, it is not meant to replace the original. But for example, in the case of, uh, of In the Air Tonight, it is taking a, a fantastic, magnificent pop track and bringing it to the dance floor. And uh, over the years, you know, there haven't even been a handful, literally. There haven't even been five mixes that were turned down. And if they were turned down, it was because um, the artist did not feel it necessary to also have a presence on the dance floor with that particular track. That's right. basically what it boils down to. And I think that, uh, you know, the way I, I uh, do the mixes, the way I treat the mixes with the, with, uh, the respect. Um, yeah, so I kind of uh, found my, my niche and my artist. style in there. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, I was reading uh, Armin Van Buren was talking about what a big influence you were on him. A lot of DJs these days cite you as listening to your show as being sort of what got them into it. Uh, and DJing has evolved so much. What do you make of it these days? Because you're still working. Uh, it must be so different now with all the technology you have at your fingertips compared to how you used to make those mixes back in the day. Well, you know, I love the technology. Um so and it and it got it got a little bit more um, complicated and it got a little bit more easier. Uh, so uh, complicated that many more things are possible now, and easier that technology helps you uh, in in certain parts. The main the big big difference though is that uh, when I started as a DJ, I it wasn't because it wasn't because I wanted to be a DJ because being a DJ wasn't a thing back then. You know, it right. didn't have the, it didn't have the, 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 the glamour and all that kind of stuff. Being a DJ back then was uh, more because you felt the urge to share the, enjoying the music with as many people as possible. And the best way to do that was, you know, having a full dance floor and everybody enjoying your music. So it's the, the, the urge to share the music you love with the people on the dance floor. That's one thing. And the other thing is, why did the mixing come in? Uh, why did the mixing become a, a, an important part to me? That's, um, that's what you use to lure you on the dance floor with the track you know. And once you're on the dance floor, I will rhythmically blend it into the next track in such a smooth way that you'll be dancing on the new tune before you realize it. So you don't have to make the decision, is this track good enough for me to get up on the dance floor? Because you're already on the dance floor. And it was the best way to introduce new music on the dance floor. Everybody's already dancing on the track they know. Mix it to the new track which you want to introduce. And if you introduce it in such a smooth blend, in such a smooth way, you can very easily introduce new uh, dance music to everybody, everybody on the dance floor. So the reasoning, the, the, the reasoning behind the DJing part is so, so very different 
than it is now because now people want to be a DJ because of being a DJ, because of the fame and, you know, the, 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 the idea they have about the fortune and uh, celebrity status and all that uh, kind of stuff, which, you know, quality-wise hollows out uh, the experience, hollows out what you are uh, presented uh, by a DJ because, you know, a lot of people go to see a DJ and not even any more so much about the music that they play or the quality in which it is blended, it is mixed. It's more a, a scene uh, where people want to be seen with the DJ, want right. to have that experience on the dance floor that they have seen a particular DJ than that it's about the actual quality that is delivered uh, in the moment. And yeah, about, uh, yeah so that, that, about, is, that is a very, very different, very different experience nowadays. Tell me about your move to Canada, because I think I was watching uh, something that you did in Dutch, I, th- I believe, I think actually it was in English, but it was, a, it was a Dutch reporter who had interviewed you, and you talked about moving to Canada. I thought, wait a minute, I, I didn't realize you moved to Canada. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about that move. What made you decide to move here? And you've moved again. You moved to Alberta first, and now you're out here in BC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the moving part kind of stems all the way back from my mother, who's uh, Scottish, and uh, she met my father in Scotland and moved with him to the Netherlands. Meanwhile, her brother immigrated to Calgary and her other sister moved to New York. So Uh moving is kind of in the genes, to to put it that way. And um, um, we visited family in uh, 2001 in Calgary. And we kind of had the feeling like we can imagine ourselves living in Canada. And they invited us, uh, uh, you know, for uh, we went back that same summer for, I think, about a five or six week period. Went through all Canada, went through the Rockies, uh, through British Columbia, uh, visited Vancouver Island. And uh, the fact that um, I'm in a business where everything already had become digital, uh, it really didn't matter anymore if where my where our front door was because all the projects were sent out digitally. And, uh, you know, even the record companies I was working for decades uh, for, they never visited my studio. They never visited my home. So they basically never walked through my front door. So it didn't matter much where my front door was. And um, the idea stuck moving to Canada. And in 2010, we moved to um, Calgary, uh, we found a, a beautiful spot just outside of uh, Okotoks in the in the rolling foothills, uh, looking over at the Rocky Mountains. Uh, had a great time there uh, until about a year and a half ago, and then um, we uh, moved to Vancouver Island. So uh, yeah, and we're loving it here. Yeah, I, I, as have I. I mean, which of course it, it just means you're getting older. <laughs> Generally in Canada, it means you're getting older if you move to Vancouver Island. Uh, but I've, uh, and and it's, it's it must be interesting. I mean, you obviously have to build. You you can build that studio and do all your work anywhere you want, right? Yes, yes. So uh, yeah. we uh, when we saw this house, we kind of uh, first thing we did uh, was uh, look at the floor plan, see if I could uh, incorporate the studio in uh, in the house and uh, built the, this studio, which is now the fifth studio. And as a matter of fact, the best sounding studio. 
and um, yeah, um, still doing all the radio shows, still doing all the the mini mixes, and uh, funny enough, the the mix you played of uh, Sting, Englishman in New York, was mm-hmm. again one of those mixes that started off as a mini mix just for radio, right? And um, recently, I have done uh, two remixes for Roberta Flack. I made okay, a dance great. version, dance version out of uh, "Killing Me Softly," which actually works very, very well, and uh, kind of uh, take the the tempo to double tempo and uh, um, you know live play the bass line there. And it, great, great, great track, and it found it found its way to uh, the record company, and uh, so that's going to be released uh, shortly as well. So I'm, oh, super, you know. I yeah, look forward so to hearing still, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, have, we'll have to play it. Well, I didn't, we didn't cue that one up. We'll have to play it later in the show. I also imagine it should be funny that your neighbors in, in Qualicum probably don't know exactly who you are, but I interviewed another Dutch woman earlier today, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to speak to Ben Liebrand. She's like, oh, I love Ben Liebrand. So there you go. <laughs> cool. uh, ben, it's, it's cool. been so much fun to have you on the show tonight. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. Are you ready now? Yes. Say goodbye, Toto. Yes, I'm ready now. Then close your eyes and tap your heels together three times. And think to yourself, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's There's no no place like home. There's no place like home, indeed. 84 years later, and it's hard to argue with Dorothy, there is indeed no place like home, even if your home doesn't happen to be Kansas. But as thousands of first-year students uh, get ready to go to college or university in the coming weeks, leaving home, some of them, for the first time to somewhere new and different, uh, and for many of us, including myself, those of us who went back to our hometowns over the summer to visit family and friends and walk some of those childhood streets that you may remember, so much has changed, right, when you go back these days, and also thinking about the tens of thousands of Ukrainians on this Ukrainian Independence Day who've uh, fled war in their home, who are here in this country tonight, probably missing home as they do uh, many days, as well as the many others who either choose or are forced to leave home behind. We wanted to take a closer look at the very common but not often investigated phenomenon of homesickness. Now, we've all had a sense of what it means. I think we've all felt pangs of it at some point, um, and we probably all have some experience with it, obviously. Uh, But I was looking up some details and, uh, you know, there's not a lot of research done into it. There are very old examples. I mean, it dates back to the Bible. I think the quote is by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, you wept for the for wept when we remembered Zion. I mean, that's a that reminds me of the Jimmy Cliff song, but it's that's the same line, obviously. Uh, and Homer, Homer's Odyssey, where Ulysses weeps and rolls on the floor thinking of home. So this the idea of homesickness. Uh, has been with us for absolutely ever. Um, But what is it exactly? And why are some of us more prone to it than others? And what can you do to help alleviate some of that homesickness, so to speak? Joining me now is psychologist and homesickness specialist, Miranda Von Tilburg. Uh, She's director of research at Cape Cape Fear Valley Health in North Carolina. Miranda, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. This is a really interesting topic and one that we there are very few people out there who've done work on this. And yet it feels like it's an emotion that most of us either know or think we've experienced. Uh, How did you get involved in it? 
I basically got involved in it because when I was doing my PhD, my mentor had a son who had homesickness issues. And so he said, let's, you know, study this. And it became my whole PhD thesis. So, but that's 20 plus years ago. <laughs> Indeed. And at the time, I mean, you sort of experienced part of it yourself because you moved from the Netherlands to the U.S. as well. And, and you sort of knew this topic firsthand. Yes, exactly. I was um, the best expert to have in my back pockets when I moved across continents and I knew exactly what to do. I knew what to expect, of course, right? They get a lot of adults, I think, are um, surprised that they get homesickness, um, even though it's very common. More than 90% of people who move home will experience this, particularly if you move longer distances. So first of all, I wasn't surprised. And secondly, I knew exactly what to do. <laughs> How do we define homesickness in this way? Because it can be many different things, but right? there are many different emotions that we go through when we're away from something familiar, for instance, uh, whether it be, you know, when you move away for, for school, for instance, or you move away for a job or for any number of reasons. And there are far more difficult reasons that people leave home to go to other places. But how do you define homesickness? Homesickness basically is a, a longing to go home when you're not home. So it's not about a previous home in your lifetime. Often that's like nostalgia, you know, uh, longing for your childhood home. That's not what we define as hope and sickness. So you have to be away from home. You long for home. And then that's associated with actual intrusive, negative sort of emotions, behaviors, cognitions, etc. So it's not just like, oh, it would be nice to be home, but it's it's literally feeling miserable because you're not home. Right. Sort of wanting something that you can't find where you are, right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times it has to show homesickness is sort of caused by both the old environment and the new environment. <laughs> so <laughs> the old environment, of course, has to be has to have been a good environment to even long for it. Right. If you leave something, you go, well, well that was terrible. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're happy to be away. And then the new environment, how different is that from your environment you used to be in your home environment uh people speak different languages the different cultures there's different foods you know all that kind of stuff can make it really tough to be in a new environment but also just you know what who is with you in that new environment right who do you leave behind and then and then thirdly it's the person itself some people are more uh, inclined to develop homesickness than other people Right. It, it could be quite detrimental, too. I know just reading through some of the interviews you've given and some of the, and your research that it can have a real, really profound impact on people. Yes. Some of the most profound impact you find in very old literature. So, for example, um, in, in the 1800s, when it was normal in Europe to send, you know, kids from poor families who were about eight or nine years old to work for families who were rich and they would just be moved away. And there's sort of case studies on them murdering, for example, the, the children they're supposed to be taken care of because that, right. in their child's mind, that will take them home. Or, for example, 17th or 18th century uh, military just becoming completely incompetent because homesickness is, is very infectious. And so, you know, it, it quickly will make your um, your army incompetent. But we we find that there are certain people who, like, I, for example, for myself, I've interviewed for my research. I've interviewed people who haven't moved away or slept in another bed for more than 50 plus years because they just couldn't. And that, of course, affects wow. everyone, not only you, but everyone in your family, in particular, one woman whose husband got sick and had to be in an assistant living. And she goes like, I can't move with them. We've been married 50 plus years, but I can't move with him. And that is heartbreaking. 
It is. And it does, as you mentioned, it does impact different people differently. I mean, there are clearly people who can pick up, leave home, even if they loved it there and never look back. And others just have a really hard time adapting to new situations, right? Especially if it feels more permanent, I think, and where you're going to feels more alien. Absolutely. Both of those are true. So I often talk about psychological distance that you have to home. So for example, if you're in Vancouver, but now you're going to go to Vancouver Island, I don't know how often you have service in between the two or if there's a bridge, but let's <laughs> say you go to an island where there isn't a bridge and service to the island stops at 8 p.m. at night. You're not that far away from home, but the psychological distance is really large because you're stuck, right? That night you're stuck. And so if you feel any inclination towards homesickness, it will just become bigger versus if you could say, well, well, I have to drive six or seven or eight hours, but I can't get home, then that psychological distance gets smaller and that's easier for people. So if you're somebody who is inclined to have feelings of homesickness, making that psychological distance smaller is really important. And in addition, just talking about and orienting yourself on a new environment, even before you leave. But especially when you're there, what what new things are there to do? What can you can you focus on? What is good in your new environment? Anything that gets you focused on that new environment is really really important. If you are there for a long period of time, like you've moved to a new city or a new town or a college, it's just really important that you get integrated in that new environment um, as quickly as possible. So be, so become parts of clubs or a church or you know it, just get to know new people who will say oh. Did you go to this restaurant? Oh, I have a perfect place to get your haircut. You know, all these kind of little things that are difficult and hard when you move somewhere new. Miranda, you already touched on it a bit. I was curious, though, now that that there's so many things available to us, I can't tell you how many times I'll go somewhere and there'll be someone sitting alone having a coffee on social media or on their phones talking to someone in what clearly sounds like they're probably in a different country so that the world has become smaller. But in our minds, does that change the impact of homesickness at all? No, I don't think so. I, th- I think homesickness is a, a really sort of this innate need that we have uh, for social connection and for being in a secure environment, right? So you, at home is so nice because you feel completely secure. There's nothing new there. There's nobody else you need to be. You can kick off your shoes. You know, you, you know exactly what to do, where to be, who to expect, um, and all those kind of things. So I don't think it differs. What it does make harder is that we actually know that contacting people in the old environment if you are prone to or have homesickness in a new environment contacting them constantly is not helpful so it might actually make it harder for us now that we have sort of this more global way to you know FaceTime people, you know, be on Zoom, doing all these things, because you will be exposed more to the old environment, and that might hamper you sort of the adjustment to the new environment that needs to happen. So that would be the only thing I would worry about. Right. So you really do need to make an effort to try to find what's good where you are and try to make up for some of those things. I I guess it's tough sometimes if you associate good with where you've come from and loneliness and sort of isolation and bad with where you now are. It's kind of hard to break that spell, but there must be ways, and you mentioned them already, but there must be ways that you can do it even while retaining a little bit of that taste of home. I mean, I I remember, of course, uh, you know, in, in growing up in a big city, how many people from different countries, this is back in the day, would have satellites so they could watch TV from back home, right? Because that was a comfort for them. But it wasn't necessarily, it didn't feel like it was detrimental to them integrating into their new home. Yes, exactly. People who are very attached to routines, they tend to get more homesickness. Now, 
all of us, if we move away, like if you move across continents, almost all of us are going to develop some feelings of homesickness for the first six months to a year. So that's just normal. But, you know, if, you, if you're a very routine type of person, it's nice to see if you can keep those routines when you're in the new environment. And listening to some of the shows, you know, that you're used to, and now with podcasts and with Netflix and all this kind of stuff, it just becomes easier to do that. It gives you that sense of routine, and it can really help you to keep that same routine while focusing on the new environment. So say, like, I'm still going to find, you know, drink my coffee every day at the same time or go to grocery store every day at the same time, but I'm going to focus on new, you know, doing that in my new environment instead of sitting at home and feeling terrible for myself. Another tip that I can give to people is that homesickness usually attacks when you are not active. So think about having dinner, going to sleep, waking up. Those are the times that you tend to be homesick um, because activity actually takes away the homesickness. It's almost like you have no time to think about home. So plan as many active things as you can do. For example, don't go like, well, I'm going to read a book in a coffee shop. No, instead, you know, go for a bike ride or a hike or do something that's active um, because it will, will not only exposure to other people and then you get more comfortable in your environment but also that activity sort of takes away the thoughts of homesickness and then plan for the times when you cannot be active so for example if you're a college student you go into a new college and you know that you're likely you very likely to develop homesickness because that's something you've struggled with always i tell people take bedding and pjs that you've slept in for a week don't right. wash them because they'll they'll smell like home. Your bedside table lamp that you have at home, so or your little alarm clock or whatever you have, you know, next to your bed. So when you wake up, you see that thing from home and it's familiar, and it makes you go like, okay, I'm I'm not so disoriented in this new environment. I I can see my own clock or I can see my own table lamp. Right. Is it okay to talk about it? Because we often think, I mean, when I think of homesickness, I think of being dropped off at summer camp, you know, sleepover camp when I was like eight. <laughs> That's, and then you're, of course, you're homesick because it's so disorienting. But adults don't tend to talk about it quite the same way. At least I don't think they do. It, it seems to be something where we really stigmatize adults having homesickness. Now, it's very common to see it in children, but then if you still have it when you're a teen or when you're an adult, we, we see it as you're a mommy's boy. It has absolutely nothing to do with your dependence on your mom or home or you know the people at home. In fact, for you to have feelings of homesickness means that you have good attachment to people. You have you know secure environments in your home environment. And for a lot of people who are homesick, that is kind of a good feeling as well. Like, hey, home is a good place. I like to be home. Yeah, you know? no kidding. So, yes, it's very stigmatizing. And then because we don't talk about it, we assume that nobody else is homesickness, which of course isn't true. And then we can't share what are actually good strategies about preventing it or helping yourself when you have it. It's it's really important that we start talking about it as just something normal and human. Indeed. And here we are. Miranda, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You really think you can capture the Loch Ness Monster? I mean, he's eluded Leonard Nimoy and Peter Graves. <laughs> Peter Graves couldn't find ugly at a Radcliffe mixer. Hi, <clears throat> hey, let's see now. We have the monsterometer, flipper finder, Hoaxoscope, which is important for the looking and finding. Ugh, the whole town's turned out. I've never seen them so excited.
There it is. Of course, as I've mentioned, there's a Simpsons episode for everything. So there, Mr. Burns, of course, goes to capture the Loch Ness Monster. So they find themselves in Inverness, no less. Uh, You know, the legend of the Loch Ness Monster and the search for Nessie has captured people's imaginations for a long time now. Really, I didn't know this until I started looking into it, uh, knowing that we were going to do this today, that it actually dates back just about 90 years. Um, The Loch, or lake, is 37 kilometers long, 240 meters deep, a beautiful spot by all accounts. I lived in Edinburgh, but never made it to Inverness, sadly. Uh, But it cemented its place in popular culture. Um, The local Inverness courier, back 100 years ago, published a story about the manager of a local hotel claiming to have seen a quote-unquote water beast in the lock while driving by. That story was picked up around the world, and the legend of the Loch Ness Monster was born. And here we are 90 years later. This weekend, Nessie enthusiasts from far and wide will descend on Inverness to take part in what's being billed as the biggest search for the oft-talked-about and rarely if ever seen, let's just call it elusive creature, in more than half a century. It's being called the Quest Weekend. It's meant to encourage a new generation of Nessie hunters to uncover the truth, or Nessie searchers, we should call them, perhaps. It's being organized by the Loch Ness Centre, which perfectly sits on the same spot as the hotel managed by the very same woman who claimed to have seen Nessie 90 years ago. Uh, it's also being organized by a volunteer research team called the Loch Ness, called Loch Ness Exploration. Uh, they will combine old-fashioned spotters on the shores, but also lots of new technology as well in their search over the weekend. And we thought we'd find out more about it because you can watch it too. It's being live streamed. Paul Nixon is general manager of the Loch Ness Center, and he joins me now. Paul, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. This isn't. I mean, this has gotten so much attention, and and I know why because I lived in in Scotland many many years ago, and uh, the legacy, the, le- the the legend of Nessie or the Loch Ness monster is is it's hard to describe just how powerful it is. But the center itself sits on a pretty interesting spot, I gather. Yeah, that's right. We are really the epicenter of where the worldwide phenomenon of the Loch Ness Monster came to be. Because 90 years ago this year, the former manageress came into the Drum the Drocket Hotel, where we are, uh, and said, I've just seen a beast. And that was the first sighting in sort of modern history uh, that really went global, caused this global sensation and kickstarted off this Nessie phenomenon that, that we know about today. Remarkable. I gather it goes back further in history, but that 90 years ago really was the, the beginning, as you put yeah. it, of the, of the phenomenon we know we know now. Yeah, I mean, there's been religious text from the time St. Columba came. So we're talking centuries ago where there's religious writings that St. Columba banished a water beast. So um, it, it, it dates back fa- uh, hundreds of years. However, the story you and I know today really owes its origins to Aldi Mackay, former manageress of the Drum the Drocket Hotel. There have been since then uh, numerous attempts, I gather, to sort of search for uh, the Loch Ness Monster, to search for Nessie. Tell me about this latest one, the Quest Search. It sounds uh, sounds like a big deal. Well, believe it or not, it's been 50 years since the last big surface watch for Nessie. Uh, and we've got more volunteers now than they had back in 1972 when the last surface watch happened. Um, but uh, as well as uh, having a, a, a higher volume of volunteers watching the water, uh, 
Now we're all aimed with uh, state-of-the-art mobile phones, ready to capture any video footage or, or stills with, with cameras which can capture much higher definition. But in addition to that, we're going to be using some of the most latest technology. So we're flying infrared drones over Loch Ness, looking for heat signatures, and we're even dropping a hydrophone, that's an underwater microphone, 60 feet down into the depths of Loch Ness to listen to what sounds are being created down there. Wow. Uh, and, and people, and you pointed lots of volunteers. I gather there's been massive interest in taking part in this. Yeah, we've had over 200 uh, registered volunteers now, so uh, we've had to close um, close our entries down. Uh, we know that over the weekend, each day, we're going to have over 100 sets of eyes. So this is people in person on the banks of Loch Ness, as well as another 100 or so logging into the webcams and tuning in, which, which run 24-7. Right. I was going to say, if you're not there and you haven't registered as a volunteer, even if you're over here in Canada, you can live stream this, right? You can you can watch alongside uh, everyone else. Yeah, you might need to get up at a bit of a funky time over there. But if you wanted to catch some daylight Nessie watching hours, then, uh, yeah, the webcams are hosted by Visit Inverness and Loch Ness. So if you find them, uh, then there's four really good, reliable cameras on there, which we're encouraging people to log into and watch over the weekend. What do you hope to find? Because I know there's been, I mean, you know, what, what is it that you're, that you're I, I suppose that the, the answer is only too obvious, but, but tell me a bit about the motivation between launching such a big search uh, at this point in time. Well, to be honest, Ben, we're hoping to, to find or inspire really the next generation of Nessie hunters. It's no secret that the people that were involved in the projects in the 1970s and 1980s are all getting on a bit now. So it's really time. There's so many unanswered questions at Loch Ness that it really needs another wave of volunteers and, and enthusiasts to come and help continue on this quest. Maybe they'll be a bit more successful and better at it than the, than the older chaps that are, that are still out there. Yeah, there there have been a few interesting ones over the years. I, I think there was one involving playing classical music. There's been there's been a Simpsons episode about about there has, uh, about, indeed. Yeah. There has indeed. I mean, it, it pretty much runs the gamut. But tell me a bit a bit, a bit about the past efforts and and what they turned up. So uh, the the sort of latest, most modern research is, has been into sort of DNA testing. So this is taking water samples from around Loch Ness at various locations and, and looking for different types of DNA. And that's been quite an interesting project uh, in collaboration with a university in New Zealand. Um, but the, the sort of last big famous hunt was where we was back in the 1980s, where we cast a, a sonar curtain. So imagine a fleet of boats traveling in a line. Um, patrolling down Loch Ness, casting this this digital curtain to try and figure out what's going on below the surface. Now, in 2020, Ben, um, a, a single boat, a pleasure boat, picked up a sonar contact uh, of an object under the water that was about the size of a transit van. I don't know if you guys have got transit sure, vans. Like, yeah, like a delivery yeah. van, sure, yeah. Delivery van, a small, uh, uh, not, well, not a tiny delivery van, a reasonably sized delivery van, yeah. Um, but when they went back to the same spot, that, that contact had disappeared. But it was a real contact. You can't fake it. Um, so, so we were very excited for that, and that was just 2020. So, what four years ago? Not that long ago, yeah, just three three short years ago. What are the theories about what it could be? Because there are many, I know, but what are the theories about what what Nessie could and maybe? Well, um, I think everyone's got their own take and their own different theory. I think when you look at some of that imagery that's been shared around the world, a lot of people think more of a, a sort of dinosaur, a plesiosaur, a sort of humped, long-necked animal that's under the water. 
some people think that actually Nessie could be a bit more familiar to us. So it could be a large version of something we know of already, like an eel. So if you imagine, we used to think that the giant squid was all but extinct. However, in, in our lifetimes, we've seen um, giant squid actually being captured. So so I guess the, there is a likelihood or a possibility that a, a giant something is living uh, in the depths of Loch Ness. I know the center focuses uh, on Nessie, but but it is it is sort of part of a much broader tome, so to speak, of sort of Scottish mythology and so forth. I mean, this this fits into something bigger. Yeah, I mean, we call ourselves the Loch Ness Center. We're not the Loch Ness Monster Center. Right. We are the Loch Ness Center. But you can't tell the story of Loch Ness now without mentioning the Loch Ness Monster. So we we very much talk about the the majesty of um, the Scottish Highlands. Then uh, we talk into about the myths and legends, and every country's got its own myths and legends, but probably none quite as popular as the Loch Ness Monster. So, uh, And then we recreate this wonderful scene where Aldi Mackay enters the bar in 1923 and claims that she's seen a beast. So it's a really special, special show you can come and see. Right, right on the very spot where the centre is, as you pointed out. Pointed in out in earlier. the very hotel bar room. So, so the room that we've recreated the bar in was the bar of the hotel. It's remarkable just how much this story over the last 90 years has put Loch Ness and Inverness on the map. Not that it is a beautiful place to begin with, and you can be a, you know, a Cali Thistle fan for sure, but it's amazing <laughs> how much it's put, how important this story is and this legend is to the community and to the many who come to visit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I, I've spoken to many Nessie skeptics and cynics, but but the way you look at Loch Ness, the way you look at the water when you drive alongside it, it's totally different to how you look at any other body of water, be it Lake Louise over in Canada, be it Lake Como in Italy or Lake Garda or Lake Windermere in England. Whenever someone's driving up and down the banks of Loch Ness, they're all looking because they think they might be the next person to spot Nessie. The one, the one. Uh, yes. Is it, I mean, ultimately, uh, if you think about it, I've always thought about, you know, the, the the legend itself is actually more fascinating than the reality of it. And I wonder whether you really do, well, anyone really does want to answer this question one way or another. Uh, well, to be honest, I think, you know, if we find something and 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 we, we say, yes, Nessie is a a giant eel that frequents the waters of Loch Ness. I don't think that's going to change anybody's uh, desire or want to come and spot Nessie. You know, I think it's only going to add further to to the, the majesty and story. You know, instead of not knowing what Ness is, we know what it is, but are we guaranteed to go and see it when we're up and down Loch Ness? I mean, it's remained pretty elusive until now. Indeed. And tell me again about the quest. So it begins on Saturday, right? Saturday, obviously, a UK time, uh, but you're yeah. doing this for two days, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, obviously, there's a there's a year-round quest to find Nessie, but what we've done is we've partnered up with Loch Ness Exploration, uh, a chap called Alan McKenna, uh, and he's been undertaking hydrophone studies and observations of Loch Ness for a number of years now. But since we reopened the Loch Ness Centre, he reached out to us and said, wouldn't it be great if we could have an organised Nessie hunt, a quest weekend? So we centred down on this weekend where we're encouraging as many eyes on the water as possible uh, to give us as big a coverage as we can uh, to see what we can see. Yeah, and I gather just from your experience at the centre, there must be an awful lot of Canadians. You must run into, I mean, this is the obvious Canada question, but you must see an awful lot of Canadians. It's bizarre, Ben. You know what? In in terms of global reach, uh, Canadians and 
the population down in New Zealand are by far the biggest Nessie curiosity groups out there. So Canada and New Zealand, you're about level pegging. If, if anything, probably Canada's got the slight edge again uh, in terms of curiosity over Nessie. Which is amazing considering how many lakes we have in this country. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, Paul Nixon, good luck. Uh, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Ben.